It's good to be here once again, and it's fascinating to hear that story from Linda Fatig, and she and I remember each other over 60 years ago, I think, back at Andrews University, and at that time she was Linda Proctor. So it's nice to be here this morning and to see Linda, and thank you for bringing Linda this morning. It's usually my policy, whether I'm doing a seminar or a sermon, to provide you with a copy of the notes that I have that I'm going to be following. And through a miscommunication on my part, my wife copied a different sermon. <laughs> so I don't have a copy for you this morning, so forgive me. I will go through my notes, and if you wish... I can get a copy of the notes that I'm using for you later on. That's good. Thank you. Sometime around 3 to 4 BC, an angel from the center of the universe visited Mary. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's see if we can twist that. I need this light for my eyes. Is that better? Okay, good, thank you. Visited Mary to inform her that she would conceive from the Holy Ghost. The baby was to be named Jesus. Then the angel elevated the meaning of this man-child. He will be great. He will be the son of the highest. He will have a throne and an eternal kingdom. He will be a king he will be the Son of God. Luke 1. This incarnation would forever be one of the great mysteries of God. This divine being became a man, yet retained his divine nature. From the days of eternity, Ellen White said, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father. He was the image of God the image of his greatness and majesty and the outshining of his glory. It was to manifest this glory that he came to this world. To this sin-darkened earth, he came to reveal the light of God's love and to be God with us. Therefore, it was prophesied of him, his name shall be called Emmanuel. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God to both men and intriguing, Ellen White says also, to reveal God to angels. He was the word of God, God's thought made audible. During that pregnancy, Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. Luke says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 141, she prophesied. Then Mary was filled with a spirit and gave unique praises to God. So unique that her words today are called the Magnificant. My soul magnifies the Lord. And Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit doth rejoice in the God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, 
From henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. She was a prophetess. For that is mighty, for that is mighty, hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. There son of God, a son of man, mandate. His divinity was not to be used for any personal gain. Ellen White says Christ was not to exercise divine power for his own benefit. He had come to bear trial as we must do, leaving us an example of faith and submission. Neither here, wilderness temptation, nor at any subsequent time in his earthly life, did he work a miracle in his own behalf. His wonderful works were all the good for the good of others. Though Jesus recognized Satan from the beginning there in the wilderness, he was not provoked to enter into any controversy with him. Strengthened with the memory of the voice from heaven, he rested in his Father's love. He would not parley with any temptation. The study of Christ's use of divine power to advance God's holy purpose is fascinating and instructive, and it's been an area of great interest to me, and I want to share some of these thoughts with you here this morning. That is the purpose of our study. An important orientation, perhaps, before we begin. The miracles of Christ for the afflicted and suffering were wrought by the power of God through the ministration, Ellen White says, intriguingly, through the ministration of the angels. And it is through Christ, by the ministration of his heavenly messengers, that every blessing comes from God to us. Now, looking at some of the illustrations of how Christ's supernatural divinity was expressed on humanity, first of all, let's look at the first disciples. John and Andrew were the first disciples to follow Jesus. Andrew was excited and found Simeon, his brother. We have found the Messiah, John 141. He found and then he witnessed. Jesus immediately knew Simon and said, You will now be called Cephas, meaning a stone translated Peter. Jesus, using his divine insight, looks into the future and sees that impulsive Peter becoming a solid rock. The eye of Christ rested upon the reading, his character and his life history, his impulsive nature, his loving, sympathetic heart, his ambition, his self-confidence, the history of his fall, his repentance, his labors, his martyrdom and death. The Savior read it all. His divinity penetrated that future. The next day, Christ met Philip and invited him to follow me. Philip, in turn, called Nathaniel, who had a spirit of skepticism. Can there anything good come out of Nazareth? He had apparently previously seen Jesus at the Jordan River at the time John the Baptist was preaching. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and exclaimed, 
Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael took this to mean that Christ was acquainted with him. An unexpected insight. Nathanael asked, how do you know me? Jesus replied, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. At the time, Ellen White says, when Philip called him, Nathaniel had withdrawn to a quiet grove to meditate upon the announcement of John and the prophecies concerning the Messiah. He prayed that if the one announced by John was the deliverer, it might be made known to him. And the Holy Spirit rested upon him with assurance that God had visited his people and raised up a horn of salvation. Philip knew that his friend was searching the prophecies, and while Nathaniel was praying under the tree, Philip discovered his retreat, and they had often prayed together in this secluded, hidden spot. It was enough. He answered and said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel, based upon the divine, supernatural insight that Christ had and expressed to him. Jesus gave a fascinating response. You believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than these. You will see divinity's power in a greater manner. You will see the more of divine divinity at work. How Christ could switch his mind from the human to the divine without any personal gain is a very mysterious thing to think about. Now let's move to another story. A public announcement, I am the Messiah. One of the required feasts for the Jewish males to attend was Passover. Jesus walked with a large group of people from Capernaum to Jerusalem. That was a hike of approximately 120 miles. They did not know who he was. He kept it secret throughout that whole journey. The temple courts had become a boisterous and loud money bartering area with the selling of sacrificial animals and obtaining temple money. So loud was this enterprise that it disturbed the worshipers. Greed and sharp dealings had hardened many hearts, especially the priests and rulers. As Jesus came into the temple, he took the whole scene. Christ saw that something must be done. Numerous ceremonies were enjoined upon the people without the proper instructions as to their import. The worshipers offered their sacrifices without understanding that they were typical of the only perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. This now becomes a transitioning point in Christ's ministry. He has made his mission and power known to a few in Galilee, but those crowds in Jerusalem also had no clue of who he was. Can you imagine how Christ's conversation went throughout that long trip from Galilee? Can you imagine how he carried his food to eat during that time 
He got hungry and thirsty just as we would. But they didn't know him until this particular day. In the temple courts, John 2.14 says he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the table exchanging money. Then everything changed at that moment in time. With searching glance, Ellen White says, Christ takes the scene before him as he stands upon the steps of the temple court. As he beholds the scene, indignation, authority, and power are expressed in his countenance. The attention of the people is attracted to him. That's an intriguing statement. The eyes of those engaged in their unholy traffic are riveted upon his face. They cannot withdraw their gaze. They feel that this man reads their inmost thoughts and discovers their hidden motives. Some attempt to conceal their faces as if their evil deeds were written upon their countenances to be scanned by those searching eyes. Ellen White then says, divinity flashed through humanity. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. A similar temple cleansing occurred shortly before the cross during the Passion Week. He knew that his efforts to reform a corrupt priesthood would be in vain. Nevertheless, his work must be done. To an unbelieving people, the evidence of his divine mission must be given. Again, the piercing look of Jesus, a divine issue, swept over the desecrated court of the temple. All eyes were turned on him. Priests and rulers, Pharisees and Gentiles, look with astonishment and awe upon him who stood before them with the majesty of heaven's king. Again, divinity flashed through humanity, investing Christ with dignity and glory he had never before manifested. Those standing nearest him drew as far away as the crowd would permit, except for a few of his disciples the Savior stood alone. Every sound was hushed. The deep silence seemed unbearable. Christ spoke with a power that swayed the people like a mighty tempest. It is written, he said, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. His voice sounded like a trumpet through the temple. The displeasure of his countenance seemed like a consuming fire. With authority he commanded, take these things, hence John 2.16. In each of these events, Christ's divinity was revealed, showing that he was more than a man. In the first cleansing, he announced his mission That was his inauguration. In the second cleansing, that mission was about to end its consummation. 
Every exhibition of his divinity cleared away any excuse to disbelieve in Jesus as the Messiah. That was part of his mission to convince that people of that. How open at these times was Christ's demonstration of his divinity. Christ spoke with the authority of a king. And in his appearance and in tones of voice, there was that which they had no power to resist. At the word of command, they realized that they had never realized before their true position as hypocrites and robbers. When divinity flashed through humanity, not only did they see the indignation of Christ countenance, they realized the importance of his words. They felt as if before the throne of the eternal judge. I find that fascinating. With their sentence passed on them for time and eternity. For a time they were convinced because of his divinity flashing through humanity, they were convinced that Christ was a prophet. And many believed him to be the Messiah. The Holy Spirit flashed into their minds the utterances of the prophets and concerning Christ. And then Ellen White asked this question, would they can be convicted? Would they follow him? Yet this did not change the deep hatred of their hearts. The same thing will occur at the end of time. Under the sixth seal, the wicked cry out for the rocks and mountains to fall on them and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne. Wickedness is cowed before divinity. When all mercy seats, it cannot exist in divinity's presence. Incidentally, that sixth seal is a very profound message in the book of Revelation because there's one sitting on the throne and one to the right of the one sitting on the throne. That's another message in itself. Yet they never repented. Now let's look at the Samaritan woman. At Jacob's well, Jesus opened up to her the wonders of the waters of life that quenches thirst forever. Her interest was gradually aroused. Before Christ could go on, she must recognize the sinfulness of her life. She must see him as a savior. Go tell your husband, well, I have no husband. You know the story. True, you have had five. The listener trembled, Ellen White says, a mysterious hand was turning the pages of her life, bringing to view that which she had hoped would forever be hidden. Who was he that would read the secrets of her life? There came to her thoughts of eternity, of the future judgment, when all that is now hidden shall be revealed in its light. Conscience was awakened. Nothing that had hitherto come in contact with her had so awakened her higher need. Jesus had convinced her that he read the secrets of her life, yet she felt that he was her friend, pitying and loving her while the very purity of his presence condemned her sin. He had spoken no word of denunciation, but had told her of his grace and his love that could renew 
with Saul. She began to have some conviction of his character. The question arose in her mind, might that this not be the long-looked-for Messiah? And she said to him, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus answered to her, based upon the kind of interaction that he had, I am he that speaks unto thee. His mysterious divine knowledge became a tool to convince and convict, not unlike what the Holy Spirit does. Christ reached out in longing interest to see the woman purified and ready for eternal life. Another illustration in the preaching at Nazareth. Jesus was speaking in the temple at Nazareth. Their concept of being free from Roman rule would come from a messianic figure, they thought. Jesus now gave them evidence of his divinity by revealing their secret thoughts. The words of Jesus to his hearers in the synagogue struck at the root of the self-righteousness, pressing home upon them the bitter truth that they had departed from God and forfeited their claim to be his people. Every word cut like a knife. As their real condition was set before them, they now scorned the faith with which Jesus at first inspired them. They would not admit that he who had sprung from poverty and loneliness was other than a common man. Their unbelief bred malice. Satan controlled them, and in wrath they cried out against the Savior. They had turned from him whose mission it was to heal and restore. Now they manifested the attributes of the destroyer. When Jesus referred to the blessings given to the Gentiles, the fierce national pride of his hearers was aroused. And his words were drowned out by a tumult of voices. These people had prided themselves on keeping the law, but now their prejudices were offended and they were ready to commit murder and break the law. It's interesting, isn't it? Divinity can bring conviction and joy. Divinity can bring conviction and condemnation. The Holy Spirit can bring conviction and joy. The Holy Spirit can bring conviction and condemnation. As you witness during the Mark of the Beast crisis, a question I was thinking as I was putting these notes together, how will we stand? What if you are not conducted to a place of safety like Christ? Will it change your relationship to Christ? Will it change your convictions at that particular time? Christ's exhibition of divinity in Nazareth changed their convictions for the worst. Another story. She touched a piece of cloth. Christ was on his way to the home of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. His daughter was ill in health. There were mourners who jarred the spirit of Jesus. 
The crowd was great and moved slowly, and in that crowd was a woman, likely anemic and weak, but hopeful. Her means had been spent on unsuccessful remedies. Then she heard of Jesus, if only. She tried and tried to get close, but couldn't. Maybe if I can just touch his garment. That was her conviction of hope. Perhaps a last chance expression of faith. She was successful in her mission. Jesus cried out, who touched me? Virtue has gone out of me. Mark 5.30. With divine skill, we are told such trust should not be passed without comment. He would speak to the humble woman words of comfort that would be to her a wellspring of joy. Words that would be a blessing to his followers to the close of time. Looking towards the woman, Jesus insisted he knew where she was and who she was. Jesus insisted on knowing who touched him. Finding concealment in vain, she came forward trembling and casting herself at his feet, a common gesture back at that time. With grateful tears, she told the story of her suffering and how she had found relief just then. Jesus gently said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. He gave no opportunity for superstition to claim healing. Virtue for Mary act of touching his garment. It was not through outward contact with him, but faith through faith which took hold on his divine power that the cure was wrought. Amazing. Heaven's power touched a longing soul for healing. More than that, Jesus knew who she was. He wanted to talk with her and give her encouraging words that only a divine psychologist could give. We can only conclude that the encounter changed her life for the rest of her days. What an experience this lady had. Question, have you reached out and maybe touched him today? Every day, every hour, he is passing by you. Near enough, you can, he guarantees, you can touch him. But you must reach out. You must have a plan, a strategy. I'm going to get close enough that I'm going to touch him. Looking now at a heathen lady, after an unhappy confrontation with spies at Capernaum, where most of Christ's ministry really was conducted up in Galilee, who came all the way from Jerusalem, Jesus headed with his disciples now toward the coastal city of Phoenicia. A heathen Canaanite lady had heard of Jesus as a miracle worker. She had a satanically possessed daughter. She decided to find Jesus and for her too 
it was her last hope. Christ knew this woman's situation and divinity at work. He knew that she was longing to see him and placed himself in her pathway. By ministering to her sorrow, he could give a living representation of the lessons he designed to teach for his disciples. For this, he brought his disciples into that region. He desired them to see the ignorance existing in the cities and villages close to the land of Israel. The people who had been given every opportunity to understand the truth were without a knowledge of the needs of those around them. No effort was made to help souls in darkness. The partition wall which Jewish pride had erected shut even the disciples' sympathy with the heathen world. But these barriers were now to be broken down. They met. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Jesus supernaturally recognized her. Jesus tested her faith, and she somehow supernaturally recognized him. Though a heathen individual, finally she cried, while bowing again at his feet, Lord, help me. From that hour, her daughter was healed. But there's something fascinating about this lady's faith, something very intriguing. The issue is not who healed her, perhaps. It could have been angels, as Ellen White talked about, but his divine knowledge that she was out to find him, he put her, himself in her pathway. How often, how many times each day does Jesus put himself in our pathway? How often do we ever, never know he was even nearby? Isn't it amazing that this lady headed home, and I find this the most dramatic part of this Story. This lady headed home, sight unseen, confident that her daughter was healed. When we pray in our hearts, if our hearts are right with God, we can confident be confident that His will will be done. Well, something else now occurred on the mountain. Christ felt that only three disciples were able to bear the transfiguration experience. Weary, they reached the spot where divinity was to be revealed to these disciples. While he is bowed in loneliness upon the stony ground, suddenly the heavens open, the golden gates of the city of God are thrown wide, and holy radiance descends upon the mountain enshrouding the Savior's form. Divinity from within flashes through humanity and meets the glory coming down from above, arising from his prostate position. Jesus stands in godlike majesty. The soul's agony is gone. His countenance now shines as the sun, 
and his garments are as white as light. The disciples awaken, behold the flood of glory that illuminates the mountain, and in fear and amazement they gaze upon the radiant form of their master. For a short time, he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. His divinity, again, was on display. Another thought, he knew their private sins. In supernatural circumstances, Christ addressed vast throngs, throngs of people during the week-long Feast of Tabernacles. The people were struck with awe at his teachings, John 7 and 8. They were drawn to him by, Ellen White says, an irresistible power. Intriguing. The final day of the feast, priests and rollers set out officers to address, arrest Jesus. Pardon me. They returned empty-handed. The rulers were angered. These officers simply said, never man spake like this man. These hard-hearted men were spellbound by listening to Jesus. It was at this time that those priests and rulers brought the terrified woman caught in adultery to him. Jesus looked for a moment upon the scene. The trembling victim, the hard-faced dignitaries devoid of human pity, his spirit of stainless purity shrank from the spectacle. Well, he knew for what purpose this case had been brought. He read the heart and renewed and knew the character of each life history of everyone present. These would-be guardians of justice had themselves led their victim into sin that they might lay a snare for Jesus. Giving no sign that he had heard their question, he stooped and fixing his eyes upon the ground began to write. Impatient at his delay and apparent indifference, the accusers drew nearer, urging the matter upon the attention. And you know the story. But as their eyes followed, those of Jesus fell upon the pavement at his feet. Their countenances changed. Their trace before them, because Christ was using his divinity, were the guilty secrets of their own lives. And finally, drama at the tomb. Arriving at Bethany, Jesus had been aware of his friend Lazarus' death. Mary arrives, falling down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Jesus then said, in quoting Ellen White, I am the resurrection and the life. In Christ is life original, unborrowed, and underived. He that hath the Son hath life, 1 John 5, 12. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. The miracle which Christ was about to perform in rising Lazarus from the dead would represent the resurrection of all the righteous dead in the future. By his word and his works, he declared himself the author of the resurrection. He who himself was soon to die upon the cross, stood with the keys of death, a conqueror of the grave, and asserted his right and power to give eternal life. 
He read the hearts of all assembled. There it is again. He restrained his righteous indignation. Then he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. His voice, clear and penetrating, pierces the ear of the dead. As he speaks, once again, Ellen White says, divinity is flashing through humanity. In his face, which is lighted up by the glory of God, the people see the assurance of power. Every eye is fastened on the entrance to the cave. Every ear is bent to catch the slightest sound. With intense, painful interest, all wait for the test of Christ's divinity. The evidence that is to substantiate his claim to be the Son of God or to extinguish the hope forever. A supreme example of his divinity is displayed. Lazarus arose, yet many in the crowd still sought his death because of hatred. One other thought, a terrorized high priest. Jesus was before Annas, the aged officiating head of the priestly family. Jesus read the priest's purpose in his inmost thinking. Now comes the issue of issues. Christ suffered keenly under abuse and insult. At the hands of the beings whom he created and for whom he made, will be making an infinite sacrifice, he received every indignity. And he suffered in proportion to the perfection of his holiness and his hatred of sin. His trial by men who acted as fiends was to him a sacrifice in itself. To be surrounded by human beings under the control of Satan was revolting to him. And he knew that in a moment, by the flashing forth of his divine power, he could lay the, his cruel tormentors in the dust. This made Christ's trial very difficult, hard to bear. Then he was transferred to the actual high priest, Caiaphas, son-in-law of Annas. At last, Caiaphas, raising his hand towards heaven, addressed Jesus in the form of solemn oath. I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be Christ, the Son of God. To this appeal, Christ could not remain silent. He must plainly declare his character and mission. Every ear was bent to listen, and every eye was fixed on his face. As he answered, thou hast said. A heavenly light seemed to illuminate his pale countenance as he added, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power of coming in the clouds of heaven. For a moment, the divinity of Christ flashed through his guise of humanity. The high priest quailed before the penetrating eyes. There it is once again of the Savior. All looked, seemed to read the hidden thoughts burned in their hearts, in his heart. Never in afterlife did he forget that searching glance of that persecuted son. Something fascinating. Christ's humanity often used his divinity for the purpose of his mission. It's very interesting in the book of Revelation. 
Christ is introduced as priest, king, and judge in chapter 1. And those three positions are unfolded as we go through the book of Revelation in different ways. But it's very fascinating in chapters 2 and 3, which are a discussion of the seven churches. Christ is revealing himself as judge. But his revelation as a judge comes in the book in different ways. There's as a judge to help us prepare for his coming, and then there's the judge with executive action at the very end of time. The mission of the seven churches' message is for us, for you and I. It's a personal mission. Jesus supernaturally is reading into the hearts of those representing the different churches, which is us today, in a way that he can give counsel. And so he gives with each of the church, except for Smyrna and for Philadelphia, counsel supernaturally. I'm seeing this in you. I need you to make these changes, to become an overcomer. The use of Christ's divinity is profound. And it's an issue that is part of a wonderful study that we have in Ellen White's writings and also in the book of Revelation. God gave his beloved son, the son of God, to become the son of man, a forever gift because he was in love with the world. Jesus voluntarily became a son of man to be bound forever with the human nature. Christ retained his divinity, his divine nature, but while here restricted its use for the benefit of others and to honor divinity. That visible expression of divinity will occur the second advent. At that time, heaven will be excited be expressive, the choirs of heaven will be heard throughout the universe. Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Let us pray. It's incredible as we study the life of Christ, the lessons we are to glean from that life, the example that we are to see, and the power that was exuded through that life, the divine power that helped to convict and convince that he was the Messiah, the Redeemer of the world. Lord, I just pray this morning for each one here. As we've gathered together, 
that the craving in our hearts will be to see him not only as Jesus, but to see him as a Savior, a Redeemer, and the Messiah, who we will be able to look into his face soon and see and know that the time has come to be part of his heavenly family forever. Lord, fill us, I pray, with your Holy Spirit. Instill in us a craving, a desire to reach out and even more than touch him, but to hold his hand forever. In Jesus' name, amen.